This is KPFA or KPFB, Berkeley or KFC at Fresno, online at kpfa.org. It's now time for Stone's Throw on Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Please stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, <laughs> yes, and today is um, April the 15th, and here comes the Pope. Pope Benedict has come to America, to the U.S. of A., to, to bless us and speak, speak peace. Yes, lots of luck, Benedict. Peace be on you. I think uh, <laughs> my favorite quote uh, about American religion is back in the 19th century, uh, a British feminist critic named Harriet Martineau, she wrote after visiting these U.S., these United States, she, she said, the received religion of the United States is opinion. <laughs> I have to admit that, uh, my opinion is, 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 well, let's call it Let's call it fractured feminist. I have to admit that these uh, male patriarchs uh, give me the creeps. The guy's 81. Poor Benedict. Uh, I don't know if he's having much fun. What was it T.S. Eliot once said about the rulers of the world? Uh, T.S. Eliot, he said, yes. Uh, he said, our world is turned by dying men. That's interesting, yes. Men who are just about to let go of life, but they're grasping it in their fists. Now, it's mean to to um, to blame them uh, f for being old. Uh, I don't think that they uh, avoid the creative choices because they're old. That's not what does it. Uh, it's just that their ideologies seem to um, narrow and grow stronger, maybe, as they get older. Uh, I'm not sure. There's a couple of cliches around about women getting more radical. I don't know. I think that's... I don't think we can count on that. I think we have to just assume that... Uh, the Jimmy Carters of this world get wiser and stronger <laughs> in their beliefs as well. I I was watching this week a TV series about uh, John Adams, our second president, old John Adams, with his decayed teeth and bad temper. But still, John Adams fought for peace, fought to keep us out of war, 
lost his second term in office when he resisted the warmongers. A lot of brownie points for that. Uh, Home box office has done it again. This show, the title is John Adams. Uh, It's done in seven parts, and it's much too thoughtful to be a smash hit. I'm sure everybody will, well, any number of people will say, well, you know, it's a bit talky. Uh, But I think... It will endure. Uh, it's it's got what we call verisimilitude, uh, authenticity. I hope that the school teachers will take careful note. Uh, <laughs> I think um, the um, uh, the bits about John Adams' health and his old age are enough for me. The uh, the visuals, the visuals. Uh, are amazing. I was startled by the uh, the scenes in which we see the White House being built by scores of slaves. They they used a um, oh gosh, it's not black and white. Think of it as a kind of sepia, but it was more I would say blue and white. Uh, we saw the uh, 18th and 19th centuries uh, and Washington coming up out of a swamp. Poor Abigail Adams struggling to keep it together while the <laughs> the state becomes a reality. She's appalled when she realizes that Washington, D.C. is being built by slave labor. The house is a mess, the White House. Um, there are stories of her doing the laundry in the uh, on the first floor. Her husband is unable to, um, what is it, to mellow. It's a wonderful, wonderful scenes. Um, John Adams unable to forgive the personal failures of uh, his own son, Charles, his son-in-law. Uh, Charles is the one who dies in disgrace, as alcoholic and mentally disturbed. Uh, the actors in this show are amazing. The leads are Laura Linney and Paul Giamatti. And I would give them the Emmys for their performances right off as Abigail and John Adams. Uh, It's nice to see something that isn't so much flag-waving. This show, um, well, they ignored some issues, you know. Uh, They left out that brouhaha about Thomas Jefferson's 38-year relationship with Sally Hemings and... They left out the stuff about atheism or um, the founders' positions as deists, they called themselves. Uh, You know, the political fighting or infighting was pretty vicious. The election of 1800 (laughs) was a lot meaner than the one we've got going now. Uh, Anyway, the series is about John Adams, not Thomas Jefferson, so I can let that pass. I think they did try to treat slavery uh, on one level. Uh, John Adams was certainly an anti-hero. He has no pretensions. He's only 5'6". Yes, Washington is the one who's so so very tall. Yes, tall but toothless. Anyway... Uh, Certainly, John Adams was an honest man. Uh, His relationship with Thomas Jefferson is prophetic 
when Tom Jefferson says that, uh, well, he says that from time to time, the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is a natural manure. Even Abigail Adams, Blanchard, she thinks, she says, uh, she says he may be dangerous. Women, women are always so conservative, you know. She <laughs> didn't. He didn't go for his radical stuff. She certainly didn't go for Sally Hemings. I had been reading some background material, wonderful stuff about what Abigail did when Sally Hemings arrived in London uh, at the age of 15, along with Jefferson's daughter, en route to Paris. She knew there would be trouble ahead anyway. Never mind, never mind. Back to Benedict, Benedict the Gentle. I tried to listen to some of the uh, pundits talk about Benedict this morning, and I just couldn't stand the deja vu all over again. You should remember that when he was the last pope's enforcer, they called him God's Rottweiler. Uh, uh, 81 years old. Can't be easy. Uh, anyway, he's quoted saying that he's ashamed of the scandal brought about by those uh, pedophile priests, you know, and his solution, of course, is to get rid of them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he's on the right track there. Um, there's always that talk of shaping up, cleaning house. Uh, I myself have uh, kept over the years a file of all the women in the church, in the Christian church, not just the Catholic church, uh, all the women who have asked these guys um, to do the obvious thing, to include them, to bring women into the church hierarchy. Okay, uh, the Pope is not going to hear their voices. Um, actually, uh, it's completely outside his worldview. The notion of sex education... Uh, even for the male clergy, I, I don't think um, this is part of his solution. The feminine, uh, the feminine solutions require great leaps of the imagination. Uh, I suppose some people think it's enough for him to talk about world peace. Uh, for me, feminism is modernism, and. Uh, you know, whether it's at the level of Abigail Adams trying to counsel her husband. She insisted that she made things change. Uh, some of the writers at that time said she was kidding herself. But anyway, uh, the presence of women, I think we have to say, have changed things. Think of the military uh, the presence of women is always perilous. I, I wish, I wish I hadn't seen that television show on rape in the Congo. Um, I'm, I'm too old to handle some of this stuff, but uh, uh, I think that the women who have the courage to tackle male institutions should get all the prizes. Um, the War on women is escalating, and it has uh, gone from a, a state of siege to a reign of terror. Uh, but 
never mind all that. Never mind all that. Um, there is some hope. I found a piece here um, in the current New Yorker of April the 14th about peace. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I hate to claim Louis Maynard as a feminist writer, but he's reviewed a book which tells us that even World War II was a bad thing. And I put this in my files here alongside of a wonderful essay by Martha Kelhorn, probably best remembered as one of the wives of Hemingway. Uh, her essay is all about uh, the futility of war. I hope I have time to read a little bit of that today. Martha Gellhorn's essay. And uh, I have on top of this article called Peace Now written a list of all the stuff that's out there today proving that all war is hell. She begins with Trojan Women over at the Aurora Theater. Then there's a movie, Phil Donahue's done a movie called The Body of War, all about Iraq, and the horrors of what we have done to our children, to the people who have been crushed by that catastrophe, that apocalypse. Uh, old John Adams, 200 years ago, 200 plus years ago, said that war is never inevitable. That's how he lost his second term, yes. He said, war is never inevitable. It must always be a last resort. Uh, I had a, a rough time this season with a lot of older males I know who have still some nostalgia for World War II. You remember the good war? And so I was pleased to find a book... Um, called Human Smoke, The Beginnings of World War II and the End of Civilization. It's from Simon & Schuster. That's a work of nonfiction composed of short, dated, factual items, many of them less than a page long, concerning people and events in the decades leading up to the Second World War. Last entry is December 31st, 1941. That's the month the United States entered the war. I remember it well, yes. It was my eighth birthday. Anyway, the book um, the book is by Nicholson Baker. And Lewis Maynard writes about him in the current New Yorker in this book section. Title is Peace Now. Subtitle, Was the Good War a Bad Thing? <laughs> Indeed, um, this writer likes to surprise, and uh, the surprise in his new book is that he's done it all in flat newspaper prose. This is a, a guy who usually takes the time to write brilliantly and show all his precocity and so forth, but he... He's trying to be very serious here, so he writes in these... He uh, just put this together with a just-the-facts, ma'am, approach. Uh, let's see. The items he has collected are taken from newspapers, memoirs, diaries, official documents, and our historical literature. Uh, Ninety pages of scholarly end matter. The presentation is all data. No distillation. 
That's like um, the movie uh, The Body of War. There isn't anybody telling you what to think here. This is just the facts, folks. Uh, no narration, you know. Uh, anyway, the author, uh, Baker, Nicholson Baker, his intention is... Uh, to answer two questions. Was the Second World War a good war? Did fighting it help anyone who needed help? And his conclusions are no and no. And his heroes, he says, are the pacifists and humanitarians who opposed a military response to the threat posed by the fascist powers. Uh, he writes... They failed, but they were right. <laughs> Footnote here, yes. Interesting, yes. Uh-huh. So much for right, folks, yes. Um, as we have been told since time began, might makes right. We'll see about that, won't we? Anyway, the, uh, the reviewer goes on to say, you can rig up a moral equivalence argument for any violent conflict. In the case of a total war, like the Second World War, a war in which civilian populations are among the targets of military action, there is sure to be plenty of atrocity on both sides. Did the Allies take actions that made war more likely and raised its human cost? An indictment would include the following particulars, the American oil embargo against Japan, the pre-war sale of planes and other armaments to future belligerents on both sides, the provocative to Japan concentration of American naval resources at Pearl Harbor, the firebombing of German and Japanese cities by Britain and the United States, the imposition of blockades to prevent the importation of food and medical supplies to Germany, the refusal of the United States and almost every other nation involved to accept large numbers of Jewish refugees, the internment of ethnic Germans in Britain and later on ethnic Japanese in the United States, the suppression of anti-war opinion the development of chemical and nuclear weapons, and the bellicose rhetoric of Winston Churchill. My footnote here says, Ouch, don't tell so-and-so, an old friend of mine, you know, who worships Winston Churchill. Ah, nostalgia ain't what it used to be. Anyway, the reviewer uh, in The New Yorker goes on, to say that um, these constitute the main themes in Baker's account. He does include uh, examples of fascist brutality as well, though often for the purpose of showing just how Nazi-like some of the Allies' statements and actions were. Now, the Allied countries were world powers for a reason, they did not rise to dominance by disdaining the use or the threat of force. They were not paragons of social justice either. Britain was an imperial nation with a long history of repressive violence in its colonies. 
the United States was a major arms exporter that operated a de facto system of racial apartheid. <laughs> no freedom here at home, right? Uh, France's quick capitulation to the Nazi occupation, the so-called strange defeat of 1940, and the French collaboration in the deportation of Jews were acts of a nation whose own experiment with liberal democracy, the Third Republic, had been troubled. About Stalin's Soviet Union, nothing needs to be said. Now, these were the imperfect states that history produced to oppose a genocidal, imperialistic totalitarianism. Why did these states resort to violence? Isn't the obvious answer because appeasement had failed? For six years, the world stood by while Hitler rearmed Germany in violation of the Versailles Treaty while Hitler murdered his political opponents, legalized the persecution of Jews, and began annexing his neighbors. Plenty of people tried to bargain with Hitler. He made fools of them all. In 1933, the parties of war were a minority in Britain and the United States. It is not surprising that by the end of 1941, they were the parties in charge. There may have been more intelligent efforts to prevent a war than those which were attempted, but it is hard to imagine that nonviolent resistance was ever a serious option. And the author of this book uh, uh, quotes Gandhi. And once again, the name of this book about World War II is Human Smoke. The Beginnings of World War II, The End of Civilization by Simon and Schuster. It suggests that World War II was a bad idea. <laughs> the reviewer, I think, seems to feel that um, violence was inevitable. <laughs> we shall see. Anyway, um, Mahatma Gandhi, yes. Mahatma Gandhi is the um, the person that the author quotes. Uh, Gandhi responds to an article in the New York newspaper Jewish Frontier back in 1939. In that paper, it was suggested that if Mahatma Gandhi were a Jew in Germany, he would last about five minutes. Okay, Gandhi replies, that will not disprove my case. I can conceive the necessity of the immolation of hundreds, if not thousands, to appease the hunger of dictators. Sufferers need not see the result in their lifetime. Jesus. Okay, now that's an expensive political philosophy. <laughs> Events, yes, certainly showed that. Uh, hard to know what this stage of history anyway the themes in this book are legitimate matters of debate and they have been debated many times and will go on being debated uh, okay there's a book mentioned an account of the destruction of German cities by allied bombing 
W.G. Siebold, a book called On the Natural History of Destruction, published in English in 2003, a brave and controversial challenge to conventional beliefs about the war against Hitler. Some readers felt that book was unbalanced and some that it was a necessary book. It is good to have all these arguments. Um, Baker's book is eccentric because it paints a dozen mostly unrelated phenomenon with a single moral brush. Now, <laughs> it is true that the United States and other anti-fascist nations should have assisted European Jews fleeing from Hitler, and they did not. It does not follow that those countries had no moral standing to oppose the Nazis. Churchill was a late Victorian saber-rattler, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt does seem to have once made a prejudicial comment about Jews. This does, or did not, disqualify them from leading their nations in a war against Hitler and Mussolini. Now, the reviewer says that when you read this book, you feel that the author, Baker, cannot have wondered whether the Second World War was worth fighting and then searched through the record, uh, seeming to have decided that no war is worth fighting and then picked the most justifiable war he could find to try to make the case. That case is made by stringing together material paraphrased from news clips and anecdotes. It's offered in this ball, just-the-facts manner. Bombs drop. Civilians die. Churchill sips a glass of port. Okay, the reviewer goes on to conclude that this is an interesting experiment uh, that the author, Nicholson Baker, is trying to eliminate the historian's interpretive gloss in the interests of respecting the rawness of the primary experience. He seems to think that facts speak for themselves. But facts never speak for themselves. We speak for them. The historian's gloss matters, not to mention all the facts that are left out. It provides the reader with intellectual traction and ability to weigh the claims being put forward to justify the selection of facts. Baker's presentation may seem empirical. These things did happen. You can look them up. No varnish has been applied. But the effect is entirely emotional because there is no nesting argument, no narrative to give the events a context. This is tabloid technique. A six-word quotation or a single image is all you need to understand any issue. The pretense of no manipulation is completely manipulative. One would not want to say that human smoke reproduces the rhetorical strategy that Baker deplores when he sees it used to generate a public frenzy for war. That would be a tendentious exercise in moral equivalence. So I won't say it. <laughs> I guess Louis Menand 
has um, uh, what is it? Uh, some soft spot in his heart for World War Two. This has been Jennifer Stone. This article about World War Two being a bad thing. Um, the book is called Human Smoke: The Beginnings of World War Two and the End of Civilization by Nicholson Baker, can be found in the April 14th issue of The New Yorker. Check it out if you are one of those who, like me, believes that all war is hell and that it is never inevitable. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy... Go as easy as you can. Help build six houses in four days as part of the Habitat for Humanity Eat Bay Earth Day Build-A-Thon, April 19th through the 22nd in Oakland. Like a walkathon, volunteers collect $200 in pledges in support of their effort. Anyone 16 or older can build. This benefit event provides trained team leaders and everything you need for success. Visit HabitatEB.org. That's HabitatEB.org. Or call 510-251-6304. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, April 15, 2008. From Pacifica Station KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. On today's 